Hello and welcome to Irish Football Chronicles, a new podcast looking at 100 of the most important games in Irish football history. We're going to lash through the history of the game in Ireland, jumping from decade to decade as we shine a spotlight on our chosen 100. We'll be focusing mostly but not exclusively on the national team and we'll cover much more than just the 90 minutes on the pitch. We'll also be looking at the political, cultural and social context that surrounded each game on our list. Now we're going to start off with a short run of pilot episodes dealing with probably the most fondly remembered series of games in Irish football history, the 1990 World Cup. Now I'm well aware that Italia 90 is the most documented event in Irish football history and there are countless books, short stories, plays, theses, documentaries out there. But we're going to save the tournament itself, the inflatable shamrocks, the airborne pens, all that, for a later date. Because for now, we're focusing on the road to Italia 90, the qualifying series for the World Cup. And this inaugural episode covers Ireland's opening fixture of the qualifying campaign, away to Northern Ireland on September 14th, 1988. Just to familiarise you with the format of the podcast, we're going to begin with a quick introduction to the footballing context of the game. And then we'll move on to talk about the social and cultural environments of the time. And then finally, we'll cover the actual game itself in a little bit of detail. So, where was Irish football at in the late 1980s? Well, Ireland's qualifying campaign for the 1986 World Cup had been an unmitigated disaster, culminating in a miserable 4-1 defeat at home to Denmark, which saw manager Owen Hand get the chop. Jack Charlton, a World Cup winner with England in 1966, was the surprising choice to replace Hand. Again, we'll cover Ireland's revival under Charlton in future episodes, but here's a few key words to help jog your memory of the great man himself. Gruff, Geordie, long ball, flat cap, fishing rod, pressure, ghouls. Under Charlton, Ireland qualified for its first ever major finals tournament, the European Championships of 1988. And if you don't remember Euro 88, it went a little something like this. It's all over! It's all over! And the Republic of Ireland is off to its first major championship final, Germany 88. The goal from Gary Mackay. In Germany, the Autobahn was like the long mile road. There was every make a caravan, all carrying the full load. For transits and hiaces and a Bedford from Tralee. With the engine overheating from a long haul and duty free. England defence and a mess. John Ollis going for the high ball, trying to knock it down for Hauptzeller. Goal! Ireland have scored! We mean England, that's all we want. But next match, we're going to get Russia and we're going to beat them. 2 nothing. End the story. Boom. And welcome to the Park Stadium in Gelsenkirchen on this, the most historic occasion in Irish soccer. It's the Republic of Ireland against Holland. McGrath! Oh! Paul McGrath will wonder how that stayed out. Kuman, Keeft. It's a goal! And the Republic of Ireland see their dreams start to disappear. Well, the cock crew in the morning, it crew but loud and shrill. Jocks are woke up in a sleeping bag many miles from Spansel Hill. Well, as the strains of Christy Moore began to fade, Ireland woke up in a pretty tough qualifying group for the 1990 World Cup. 
Now, to modern ears, Group 6 of European qualifying doesn't sound all that, to be honest. Ireland were landed with Spain, Northern Ireland, Hungary and Malta, with two of those teams to qualify for the finals in Italy. But you have to remember that the Republic, despite many close calls that we'll cover in detail as we go, had never been to a World Cup before, and that psychological barrier was huge. Both Northern Ireland and Hungary had qualified for the 1982 and 1986 World Cups, and Spain were almost impregnable at home, if rather brittle on their travels. At first glance, Malta could be safely written off. After all, Ireland had racked up their all-time record score of 8-0 against the Maltese in 1983, which remains a record to this day. Now, there's a quote that management consultants and life coaches and those kinds of people love to use. It comes from the author Mark Twain, who allegedly said that if it's your job to eat two frogs first thing in the morning, then you should start with the biggest one first. Well, Jack Charlton, who was never averse to slaughtering animals, would have to go one better if his team were to qualify for the World Cup, because Ireland's three toughest fixtures would be their three opening fixtures, away to Northern Ireland, Spain and Hungary. And Ireland would open their campaign away to Northern Ireland in Belfast on September 15th, 1988. By the way, I want to assure any international listeners that we will address the question of why Ireland has two national teams in future episodes. Suffice to say, it's a long story. So before we go any further with the football, I want to take a step back and look at the kind of country Ireland was in 1988. 1988 was, of course, Dublin's millennium year. A thousand years, supposedly, since the Gales defeated the Vikings and the city we now know as Dublin was born. In fact, the whole millennium thing was pretty much cocked up by Dublin Corporation as an excuse to boost tourism. There were millennium milk bottles, millennium records. There was even a special millennium 50 pence piece, which we all hung on to in the belief that they'd eventually be worth a fortune. You can pick them up for about a fiver apiece on eBay now, although my stash was very quickly exchanged for mouthfuls of big time bars and chomps. There was actually a whole spate of these spurious commemorations around Ireland during this time, starting with Galway 500 in 1984 and reaching the height of absurdity in 1993 when Mayo decided to celebrate its 5000th anniversary because someone thought a few stones in a bog near Ballycastle looked roughly that old. But cities and counties had to resort to these desperate measures because Ireland had suffered tremendously during the global recession of the 1980s. Even by 1988, things were still pretty tough for everyone except the elite layer of society. Charlton's Ireland team was a national obsession in the 80s and 90s, but the majority of football fans, the ones who filled Lansdowne Road to the rafters on a Wednesday afternoon, were still overwhelmingly working class. The middle class sporting consumer wasn't really a thing yet, if you're under 30, you might be surprised to learn that rugby was not a mass spectator sport in Ireland at this time. A successful Irish rugby team would draw crowds, but domestic rugby was still a private perversion of bank managers and suburban dentists. This was also an interesting period for the League of Ireland, which effectively had its own national team for a couple of years in the late 80s, but we'll get onto that in a later episode. Now, the Northern Ireland Republic game took place just a couple of days before the start of the Seoul Olympics, so it was a bad time to be a telly addict if you weren't into sport. Many, many people only had access to the two RTE channels at this time. Don't think about that for too long or your brain will turn to mush, as indeed most people's brains did during the 80s. On the night of the game, your alternative viewing on RTE1 was an episode of the epic miniseries Shogun. 
miniseries were the 80s equivalent of Netflix prestige dramas, only even more pompous and overblown. Shogun is a good example. Each episode is about a week long and one of them contains a 10 minute sequence in which the lead character is taught to conjugate Japanese verbs. The honour and the horror, the power and the passion, the beauty and the tragedy. Richard Chamberlain, Toshiro Mofune, a six part epic presentation that is Shogun. If that didn't take your fancy, you could have wandered down to the Ambassador Cinema in Dublin to take in Monty Python's Life of Brian, which had been out for a good nine years at this stage, but which had only just been taken off the banned list in Ireland. In fact, a new censorship furore had just erupted over Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which the Archbishop of Dublin was campaigning successfully to have banned in the Republic. The autumn of 1988 also saw the dying days of the pirate radio movement. Ireland had some of the most restrictive broadcasting laws in Western Europe, and the 1980s saw flourishing of innovative, youth-oriented private radio operators. The pirates played chicken with the law for most of the decade, getting chased up and down the radio dial by heavy-handed guard raids and closures. Pirate stations were wildly popular, outperforming RTE in many local markets throughout the country. By 1988, the state had heard enough and the pirates were forced to walk the plank. At 6 o'clock this evening, this station will cease broadcasting as required by the 1988 Wireless Telegraphy Act. Draconian legislation ordered the pirates off the air by December 31st, 1988, in return for a handful of independent licences. This being Ireland, this process inevitably ended in corruption, tribunals and a handful of millionaires owning the airwaves. We'll get on to the match in the moment, but first we have to address the obvious elephant in the room. 1988 was an horrendously bloody and brutal year in the Northern Irish Troubles. When this match was played, an inquest into the shooting of three unarmed IRA members by the SAS in Gibraltar had just begun and the year had already witnessed some of the most notorious episodes of the Troubles, including the attack on Milltown Cemetery, the Corporal's killings and the Ballygawley bombing. The Irish Football Association, that's Northern Ireland's FA, can't stop, explain later, did everything they could to discourage Southern fans from travelling due to security concerns. While the atmosphere at Windsor Park on the night of the game was tense, the match passed off more or less without incident. This was only the third ever meeting between the two Irelands. A previous game in 1979 had seen rioting in the streets and the Republic's Jerry Daly stretched out by a coin thrown from the crowd, while a subsequent match in 1993, well, we'll deal with that in a future episode. In between, a 1984 UEFA Cup match between Bohemians and Rangers had seen much of Fibsborough trashed by Rangers fans who had largely travelled from the north. The Northern Ireland team had yet to enter their long decline, and this was first and foremost a football match between two evenly matched sides for the highest of stakes. Maybe that's why the politics didn't intrude quite as much as one might have expected. Jack Charlton did his bit too, famously striding over to a group of abusive Northern fans and blagging a cigarette and lighter off them, which took the edge off things. And so, finally, to the actual football. The Republic would be, without Liam Brady, one of a handful of genuinely world-class players that Ireland has ever produced. 
here's an interesting exercise. If you'd never seen Liam Brady play or heard anything about his career and you had to guess what sort of player he was purely from his punditry, what would you say? You'd probably have him marked out as a cranky, ref-baiting, workaday defensive midfield player. In fact, Brady was a playmaker of incredible poise and clarity, a player who nurtured the ball with a jealous passion. Other than Kerry Gold, he was Ireland's most successful export to the continent in the 1980s, winning the Serie A title with a magnificent Juventus team. Ah, Kerry Gold. Love this in Ireland too. Why am I spending so much of our precious time together on a player who was long past his best by 1988 and who didn't even feature in the game we're talking about? Well, because Brady's fall from grace was kind of emblematic of the national team under Charlton. It wasn't that Charlton didn't rate Brady, he did, and Brady was a crucial part of Charlton's side in the early years, although he'd missed out on Euro 88 through injury and suspension. But whatever you thought about his tactical approach or the aesthetics of his game, Charlton was a manager of tremendous vision. He knew that the game was up for the conventional playmaker, the maestro who took the ball off the back four and dictated play from there. Football was just getting too fast, too intense, too physically demanding for players like Brady to run the show in splendid isolation as they had done during the 70s and earlier in the 80s. Frank Stapleton, another legend now nearing the end of his career, was also left out of the Irish team. Charlton's team was also missing Packy Bonner, the Celtic goalkeeper now firmly established as Ireland's number one. Bournemouth's Jerry Payton, one of the most patient men in football, stood in. Chris Morris of Celtic and Chris Hewton of Tottenham took the fullback slots with the iconic pairing of Mick McCarthy and Kevin Moran in central defence. In central midfield, Charlton had the luxury of selecting Paul McGrath and Liverpool legend Ronnie Whelan. McGrath was playing reserve team football at Manchester United during this time. He's now regarded as one of Ireland's greatest ever centre-halves, but Charlton played him in midfield right up until the early 90s. His reasoning was that McGrath was simply too skillful a player to maroon in the back four. Kevin Sheedy and Ray Houghton played on the left and right respectively, with Tony Cascarino acting as the lightning rod up front for Charlton's long ball game. Cascarino was joined in attack by Liverpool's John Aldridge. Aldridge was an amazingly prolific striker at club level, with a goals per game ratio of better than 1-2 and two across his whole career. But incredibly, this was his 19th cap for Ireland and he had yet to score an international goal. That's because Charlton used Aldridge as a shield rather than a sword. Aldridge was Ireland's first line of defence. His job was to chase and press opponents into making a mistake or coughing up possession. It was a task that was frankly beneath him, but he never shirked it. Now, from the vantage point of 2019, that Ireland team makes for pretty depressing reading. Compared to now, the calibre of player Ireland could call on, well, there's just no comparison. These were all top-class, top-division players at some of Europe's biggest clubs. The roll call of the Northern Ireland eleven wasn't quite as exalted, but it did harbour some excellent players a lot of whom went on to become jobbing low-level managers for some reason. Nigel Worthington, Danny Wilson, Jimmy Quinn and the late Alan MacDonald were all in the team, along with future Puerto Rico national team manager Colin Clark and current Northern Ireland manager Michael O'Neill, then a promising young midfielder at Newcastle United. This was actually Northern Ireland's second qualifying game. They'd already racked up a 3-0 win over Malta in the group's opening match way back in May. 
So, on a crisp, dry, floodlit autumn night in Belfast, referee Michel Votreau gets the game underway with the two Irelands lined up in 4-4-2 formation, the Northerners in green shirts and white shorts, the Republic in white shirts and green shorts. It's the Republic that starts strongest. Just three minutes in, Alan MacDonald crunches into Kevin Sheedy on the edge of the box, earning himself a yellow card. Now in the late 1980s, getting booked was much more of a social faux pas than it is today, and getting booked after three minutes was the equivalent of puking on a nun. From the free kick, Houghton touches the ball to Whelan, Whelan's shot is blocked by the wall, and Houghton hoists the loose ball to the back post. Morin heads back across goal, Cascarino's there. And it hits the post, and it's a goal! Tony Cascarino! Or is it? Oh, the referee! Well, it looked as if it was a goal, but the referee just decided no goal. Certainly hit the post, and yes, the goalkeeper caught it right on the line. Now, this isn't going to be a podcast about the good old days or how they've ruined the game, but I do think it's worth noting that the interval between the commentator announcing that a goal had been scored, wrongly, and the ball being booted back upfield by Alan McKnight was 17 seconds. The referee made a plausible call in good faith, and everyone simply got on with the game without the sky falling in. The half wears on with the Republic on top. Now, you may have heard that Charlton's teams like to get the ball forward early. Whatever you've heard, double it, treble it, shout it from the rooftops, stick a flashing top hat on its head. It's impossible to exaggerate how literally they took this. Any time the Republic gain possession in their own half, the ball is immediately whacked through the intervening space. If a goal is going to come in this half, it looks like it's going to come via McCarthy's booming throw-ins or Whelan's free kicks. 12 minutes in. Whelan swings in a free kick from the right and Cascarino's there, but his header skims wide. 14 minutes. Cascarino picks up a throw-in down the left-hand side, skins Mal Donaghy and crosses for Aldridge who gets across McClellan but heads well over. This was another weird feature of watching Ireland during the Charlton years. Because the ball was constantly being pumped into the corners, the target man often wound up crossing it from wide positions, so you'd often be treated to the bizarre sight of the giraffe-legged Cascarino or Quinn crossing the ball for Ray Houghton, the only player whose Sabutio figure was life-sized. Northern Ireland get a foothold. Right-winger Steve Penny is causing Chris Hewton problems. Kingsley Black, the Luton youngster with the coolest name in football, snaps a shot on the turn, but Peyton is well behind it. Jimmy Quinn flashes a header wide from Donaghy's cross. Then, just before half-time, a moment to stop the heart. Kevin Moran lunges knee-high at Danny Wilson. Again, this is 1988, so it's just a free kick, rather than a red card and a bunch of Game of Thrones memes. Wilson places the ball 30 yards out on the right-hand side. Nobody knew it at the time, but Jerry Payton's full-length two-handed save from Colin Clark was a crucial moment in the history of Irish football. A few years later, Jack Charlton would talk about Alan McLaughlin justifying his existence with a goal at Windsor Park. Well, Jerry Payton had just justified his. At halftime, BBC Northern Ireland viewers were treated to a panel of Eamon Dunphy and Martin O'Neill, who engaged in a bit of spiky banter, anticipating their future relationship down south. Anton Rogan replaced the injured Mal Donaghy at halftime. This was the only substitution either side would actually make. 
Rogan, a Catholic and a Celtic player, had been booed on his home debut for Northern Ireland and got another dose of booze here tonight. But he was always reluctant to dwell on the sectarian abuse he received. The second half gets underway and the Republic are quickly on top. Whelan feeds a deep pass through to Cascarino. The big man dummies it and Houghton is through. The shot is saved but it falls straight back to him. He shimmies around Rogan and the goal opens up. Houghton has scored crucial goals for Ireland before and he's going to score another one. Can he get it in? And cleared off the line by Michael O'Neill. But not today. 55 minutes in now. Sheedy floats a corner to the back post. And the header and another great save. Cascarino's header. Point blank. Header. And McKnight was in the right place. From here on out, the game is more heat than light. Roared on by a partisan home crowd in Windsor Park, a stadium which always managed to look bigger than it was, Northern Ireland give no quarter in a frantic but largely chanceless second half. It's the kind of game that opens bottle tops with its eye sockets and gargles with jet fuel. Alas, all the sound and fury ultimately signifies nothing, until just before full time. Back header is Aldridge, and McLennan, Aldridge is there, so it's McKnight. John Aldridge just shakes his head. Both goalkeepers have made good saves tonight. So there you have it, stalemate. No goals, a point apiece, and everyone leaves Belfast with their pride intact. It may seem a bit anticlimactic to begin our series with a nil-nil draw, but the truth is, much of the history of the Irish national team is made up of anticlimax and moral victories and near misses. Those are the things that lend texture to our memories and to those rare occasions when things did go Ireland's way. The Republic followed up the draw with a 2-0 defeat to Spain in Seville. This was a severely depleted Ireland side with Kevin Moran shoehorned into midfield. It would be almost five years before Ireland lost another competitive game by more than one goal. By the time the Republic played their subsequent game against Hungary in Budapest, Northern Ireland were pretty much out of the running, having lost twice to Spain and once to the Hungarians. The Republic took on Hungary in Budapest in March 1989 in a tense and just plain bad game, which ended nil-nil. In fact, I've looked into it and Jack Charlton's side remain the only team ever to qualify for the World Cup after failing to score in each of their first three qualifiers. Before we finish up, I just want to read a quick snippet from the Irish Times. It's a rather alarming story about the President of the United States and the fact that his own staffers have considered removing him from office under the 25th Amendment to the US Constitution. It's reported that the staffers told stories about how inattentive and inept the President was. He was lazy, he wasn't interested in the job, they said he wouldn't read the papers they gave him, even short position papers and documents. They said he wouldn't come over to work. All he wanted to do was to watch movies and television at the residence. The date on the story is Friday, September 16th, 1988. President Reagan remained in office until January 1989. See you next time. This episode of Irish Football Chronicles was put together using a wide variety of sources, including the Irish Times online archive. 
Some of the audio clips you heard were from the excellent Irish TV archive maintained online by the YouTube user Killian M. You also heard a brief snippet from Christy Moore's Joxer Goes to Stuttgart, performed in the RT studios during the 1990 World Cup. And the little clip of Pirate Radio you heard is from Brian Green and John Walsh's fantastic online archive, www.pirate.ie. Needless to say, copyright on all those sources rests with the copyright holders, and they're used here purely for illustrative purposes. Email us at 100irishgames at gmail.com. 